Greg Combs. And this is yet another episode of From Dan to Beersheba, a podcast uh, brought to you from Christ Memorial Church in Williston, Vermont, where I'm senior pastor and Craig is associate pastor of education. And this month, Craig, we are talking about legalism. Yes, or legalism and lawlessness, another way to say it. And why not? Because uh, we're trying to make people what legalists or lawless ones yeah, which we, one is right. it well a little of both i think okay. would be yeah of course no i think we want to address the fact that there's there's two factions of christians you might say who seem to be critical of one another who stand in their position and kind of criticize the others and we've often used the expression legalism or those legalists over there and people that we might label as legalists have often used the expression, oh, those libertines, those lawless, those lawless people over there. So uh, I thought it was worth talking about a little bit how you identify these groups and where the truth lies. Because uh, I think the truth doesn't really lie in either one of those extremes. Well, let's get going. How do we uh, think about legalism and lawlessness? The legalists tend to be the people who have contempt <laughs> for the libertines. The libertines are the ones who make themselves free. Libertines has, you know, the word liberty in there. So Fair. freedom. The libertines are those who would uh, really lean into uh, freedoms and want to embrace freedoms. And, of course, we're free in Christ, so I'm not sure what the problem is. Yeah, well, these would be people who, it could be said, would make themselves free to claim Jesus Christ as their Savior, to name the name of Christ, but also to live by whatever standard they choose, or no standard. They, they profess Christ, and they live lives of sin that deny or shame Christ. So there are tons of examples of this, of people who claim to be Christians, but they're practicing sexual freedom or they're abusing substances or they're disregardful of of human life and and they don't care anything about the church uh we might say if we were putting our theologians hat on people who claim justification without any concern for sanctification they claim in other words being right with god without any concern for holiness and and the, the the caricature of the gospel that these guys embrace is, uh, I'm under grace, I'm free, Christ has paid for my sin, so you know yeah. I'm not gonna sin is kind of a drag, man. <laughs> I'm not gonna think too much about. Yes, that. that's fair. I mean that's that's the right way to characterize it. So th- those libertines, however, they also have contempt for the legalists, and the legalists could be said to be the people who sit in judgment on the deeds of other people and who impose rules, laws on other people, rules and laws that have to be kept in order for them to qualify to name the name of Christ. Unless you do this, you're not a Christian. Unless you don't do that, you're not a Christian. Or even, if I can insert here, if you find a legalist who's willing to play ball on a certain day, maybe they won't say, if you do that, you're not a Christian. But they might say, you're not okay, a good Christian. But a good Christian yes. wouldn't do that, or a good Christian would do that. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And I think we need to touch on that one just a little bit more. But just to r- round that out, these would be people who, who profess. Christ, they name the name of Christ, but they live lives of servitude themselves that that deny his free grace. Uh, and so these are people whose practice is always speaking out against the sins of others, other kinds of unacceptable sinners, and they pronounce guilt and shame over over practices that aren't kept well, whether it's as simple as things like church attendance or giving or daily devotions. And you might say that these are people who, by their deeds, show that they believe in sanctification by works. 
and assurance by sanctification. And so we're not saying you ought to tend toward one or tend toward the other. We're saying both are yes. ditches. Both are to be avoided. Yes, those are both ditches on the road we want to be on, on the one side and on the other, because neither one of those points of view is really the gospel. You know, I, I think to frame this out, we have to go back in time just a little bit and put on the table the fact that the, the salvation that God revealed in the Old Testament was not a salvation by works. But a lot of people think that it was. Yeah, that's, that's essential and bears repeating. It's never been the case, not even during the time of the Old Covenant, during the time of the Law of Moses. It's never been the case that God's true people by faith ever related to him in any way except by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That is exactly right. It was the misuse of God's law that led to that perspective. The Jews themselves who received God's law moved in a direction of embracing the law as though keeping it was going to save them and make them make them right. But you know, when you when you read the book of Hebrews, some of the lights are turned on in Hebrews chapter two, you get this litany that if you've got your Bible there, Mitch, uh Hebrews two, one to four is kind of a litany of disobedience to the word of God. Read read some of that. Yeah, so Hebrews 2 begins by saying, Therefore we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord. It was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. So that's talking about, of course, the law that God handed down to the children of Israel after he delivered them out of Egypt. But the Hebrew writer goes on to talk about the failure. He's talking about the failure of the Jews to keep the word of God. And and on account of that failure, they did not enter the land of promise. They weren't permitted to enter into the land of promise. But the Hebrew writer is very clear in chapter 3. That disobedience to God's word, to his law, was evidence of unbelief. He says it explicitly. Yeah, in chapter 3, verses 18 and 19, And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, which was typified by entrance into Canaan, the promised land? To whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. So their unbelief, disobedience are well nigh synonymous. Yes, and that's that's critical for understanding the issue that we're talking about. Salvation was always by faith and not by works, but there is a relationship between the faith that saves and obedience to God's word. Uh, Paul says in Galatians chapter 3, that that law of God was designed to drive us to Christ, to show us him, to show us our need for a Savior. So there's a sense in which you could really kind of say God gave his children a law so that when they broke it, they would see that they needed a Savior. And they inevitably broke it, so the Savior had to come. Uh, The law is a tutor to lead us to Christ is how how Paul puts it. And so in the New Testament, it is it is evident that salvation is not by works. As it never, never was. was. As it never was. But it is explicitly by faith. You know, Ephesians chapter 2, really the whole first 10 verses, which describe the life of sin and how those who were lost walk and live, and it, it shuts everybody up under that indictment. Everybody was like that, the Apostle Paul and everybody else. Uh, but then he says those famous memory verse words, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves it is the gift of God, not of works or not as a result of works, 
that no one should boast. So that's a clear, explicit statement. And really, we see that happening in the life of Jesus even before he went to the cross as he was preaching the kingdom of God and offering the gospel to people. Jesus was correcting the practices of the Pharisees who were the poster children for misusing God's law as though just keeping it made them right with God. And, of course, they persuaded themselves that they were really good at keeping it. And they certainly wanted everybody else to think that they were really good at keeping it. That's why you get the indictment of them that were they were guilty of tithing mint and dill, like paying attention to the minutiae of the law, the details, the technicalities, but neglecting the heart of the matter, the heart for God. But they were also sort of classic legalists because not only did they reckon themselves to be earning merit with God by their supposed obedience, but they loved to look down on others yes. who in their minds didn't take the law as seriously or obey it as well as That's they. That's right. That's, you know, to be a legalist kind of is both of those things. It is. It's to try to make yourself right with God by what you do while condemning the other people who aren't as good at doing it as you are. That's right. <laughs> if I could put it that way. So there is a relationship between faith in Christ, saving faith in Christ, and being accepted by God, and a life of obedience to God's Word. There is a relationship between those. Of course there is. That's that's really where both the legalists and the libertines get away from the gospel, is in misunderstanding this relationship between faith and works. That is exactly right. And one of the best ways to characterize it, to conceive of it in our minds, is to recognize that it's the relationship between a root, the root of a plant, and the fruit of a plant. And I didn't make that up. I don't know who first said that, but it's a good metaphor. People usually just say Augustine when they don't know. So yeah, I like that. I love Augustine. I might name a kid that. <laughs> oh, wait, I did. That's right. That's right. That's right. Well, faith is the root. Now, even we're not going to go off into talking about justification today, but it bears clarifying. It isn't faith that justifies. It's Christ. It's God who justifies. It's faith that lays hold of Christ. Faith connects with Jesus, and we are justified because we're united with Christ. So, And even yeah. that faith, as you said from Ephesians 2 earlier, is a gift of God. Yes. It's not as though... God is accepting faith as a substitute for righteousness. It's that the faith is a mechanism by which God gives us the righteousness. So, again, without going off into justification, that's important for me to say that it's the root and the fruit because faith is the root, justification, therefore, is the root, and the fruit is a changed life that begins to obey God. So it's good works or works of obedience to the word of God, works, you know, obedience, therefore, to the law of God, which is part of the word of God. And right here is where the, the disharmony between these factions starts to come into play. What is the relationship of the believer in Christ who's united with Jesus by faith and has been accepted as right by God. He's been given righteousness. What is his relationship then to the law of God? And so <clears throat> there are some who say, well, he has no relationship to it at all. And they're equating the law of God with the whole old covenant economy, everything to do with Moses. But that's that's flattening things out in a very unhelpful way. So we've We've already said that the legalist is the one who kind of tries to use God's law to make himself right with God. Uh, and and, and if, we're, if we're defining that, that legalist, we can also see that this person, therefore, incorrectly approaches God in law categories. He comes at God from a legal mindset. Simply, what are you demanding from me? What can I give you to satisfy you? 
And so he's got confusion in his mind about God's love and grace. He's approaching God with a a legal mind, a a legal framework. You know, I, I think, and I didn't, I'm not the first to observe this, but I think you can see that in Satan's temptation of Eve in the Garden of Eden, in the beginning, when he came to her, and, and he said, did God really say you can't eat from all these plants? He's sort of tempting her to think of God in non-generous terms. Mm-hmm. Now, what God actually said was, from any tree in the garden you may eat freely, but from the one tree you shall not eat. And, and so God was putting them in a position to trust him as a good and generous God who gives and also to believe him when he tells them what's good and what's best for them. But the temptation was to think about God as kind of stingy. And so to he's re- holding out on you. He's holding out on you so that you begin to relate to God in not as a generous giver, but as a demander. And that's a legal mindset. What do you demand? You've given me a law. What do I have to give you? You know, I'm reminded that in Acts chapter 15, that famous Jerusalem council, they were having a conflict in the churches between Jewish believers and Gentile believers about some of the Jewish practices. And so they weren't sure what should we require of people and what should we permit people to do that we used to do under the old covenant how do we make this transition into new covenant territory yeah because paul's come back from his missionary journey talking about all these gentiles that have believed and now it's like well what do we do with that because how much of the law do we uh, bind them with and all of these kinds of questions yes and bind is a good word because the jerusalem council when they the apostles got together. They made a ruling to help guide the churches. And they they sent this letter, but they used the language of burden. We're going to not put a burden, they said, on the Gentiles. We're not going to burden them with uh, keeping a law, as they said. You know, it's been said in one place or another, a law that we never were good at keeping anyway. Yeah. Uh, we're not going to burden them with law-keeping. As such, we're not going to burden them to think they have to relate to God in law categories. That's that's part of the essence of legalism, is relating to God with a legal mindset, a law mindset, instead of relating to him as a generous and giving God who loves us and is been being merciful to us and is encouraging us in good things. Well, that makes me think that... Uh... That an insidious kind of legalism, a kind of legalism that might fly under the radar, is when we think that God is more pleased with us when we've maybe had what we think is a pretty good obedience streak. Yes. And when we think he's displeased with us when it's clear to us we've not had a very good obedience streak. That's that right. That belongs to the category of legalism because it's still that that quid pro quo relationship it with is. the Lord. I think that's well said. It's still scorekeeping. And the gospel is saying to us that the score has been settled. Yes. And Jesus has won. Yes. And so and you in him. And you in him. So yes. there's no scorekeeping for us. We we see this legalism rear its head, maybe not in its Worst form, in its worst form, you're talking about people who are trying to make themselves right with God by their works. They're still lost. You can't come to God that way. But even amongst Christians who are still somewhat confused or not clear about how all this works, uh, we see it in Romans chapter 14 when Paul writes and tries to correct some practices, and he talks about weaker brothers and stronger brothers. Brothers, and that's where your comment you made earlier kind of comes in. You've got people who are looking at other Christians, some Christians looking at others and saying, Well, you know, I'm not going to say you can't 
be a Christian and do what you're doing or fail to do what you're doing. Mm -hmm. But a good Christian wouldn't do that. And they leave themselves in the position of sort of rendering that, that judgment. And Paul says, oh, no, no, you've got to be clear. You're not here to pass judgment on the opinions of your brothers in things that don't determine his rightness or wrongness with God. Uh, a lot of times the, the, the weaker brother, the one who, in Paul's writings, doesn't have enough faith to know that as a Jew, it's okay to eat whatever is set before him and not to worry about the kosher laws. He doesn't understand that. His conscience isn't strong enough. Now, Paul is clear. There is a right and a wrong to that issue. All foods are clean for Christians, Jewish Christians as well as Gentile Christians. But, he says, when your conscience is telling you not to do it, you shouldn't violate your conscience. The problem is the weaker brother who doesn't have a strong enough conscience to, let's say, eat the meat, could be other practices, but he also tends to think that he's the really righteous one. That's right. Because he's really minding the rules, and then he becomes critical or passes judgment on the other brother who's doing these things. And he says, you're living loose out there. Yeah. You shouldn't be allowed to do that. That's not what we're about. And that's how legalism I think, rears its head in the church. That's the, the New Testament example because we need to be prepared to accept one another wherever we are in our growth and grace and not condemn one another. And part of, part of how you can sometimes see this lack of acceptance manifesting itself is that legalists can accuse those who have a, a relatively healthy view of the gospel as libertines or antinomians, which is a, yes, a, a term yes. I think we'll get to in a little bit. Yes. It, it essentially just means no law or against law. That's right. And libertines, you know, those who, who misuse grace as a license to sin um, can look at those who are taking their holiness seriously and are waging war against sin uh, as legalists. That's right. So there's there's all kinds of ways to get off on this thing, to, to yes. kind of leave the right path. Yes, not misunderstanding each other, and frankly, in Paul's language, not accepting one another, mm -hmm. which is what he goes after, because the love of the brothers is supposed to cover this as we accept one another in Christ. Well, the other side of the, the coin there, as we, we've talked about the legalists, is the you said antinomian. That's the word. That's the $75 word. Anti against nomian from namas law against law. And these are folks who reject law as a category, as anything that's binding upon Christians who are saved by grace. They say, if I'm saved by grace and I'm not saved by law, then law has got nothing to do with me. I don't listen to law, so I'm an anti-nomian. Uh, they, and, and they say it's not binding. The, the Old Testament law, the Ten Commandments, it's not binding on me anymore. And I would say that they, they misunderstand, they critically make wrongful use of the word binding. What does it mean for it to be Binding, because on the one hand, we want to affirm that law does not bind Christians in slavery. God's law is not a master over us that threatens us because it's the ground of our acceptance. And if we break it or fail, we're out. So it's not binding. God's law is not binding on us in that sense. It is in that sense that Jesus Christ kept God's law for us. So it's not binding in that. But it is binding in another sense. Binding, and maybe binding is a poor word, but just for the symmetry, I'm Yeah, but I'm, I'm jealous for us to, to not totally cede that ground. I think binding is an appropriate word for this discussion. Yeah. So the law does bind Christians because God binds us to himself. He binds us to himself in moral purity, and God's moral purity, it turns out, is expressed in his law. 
That's where God tells us what good and bad are. That's where God tells us what right and wrong are. That's what, where God tells us what pleases him and what looks like him and what reflects his character because God's law is something that issues from his person. He didn't just make up some arbitrary laws. They are a reflection of who God is in his intrinsic holiness. So to just try to crystallize maybe what it is that we've said so far, a great many of the Jews under the Old Covenant, under the Law of Moses, wrongly thought themselves to be in God's good favor because of their law-keeping. That's right. And now that the New Testament has shown us that was wrong, that we are saved by grace through faith, some have let the pendulum swing too far the other way and said, okay, well, if we're not saved by works, which is right, we're not, we're not saved by works, then works have nothing to do with it. And that's where you get into this libertine, antinomian kinds of ideas. And we're saying, no, it's always been the case that God's people in any age have been saved by grace through faith in Jesus apart from works. And yet, that being saved by grace through faith has evidenced itself yes. in law-keeping. Right. Imperfect law-keeping but law-keeping nevertheless. Now, it's a separate conversation, which law? Because there are Christians who understand all of the Ten Commandments still to be binding on Christians. And I want to touch on that a little bit. Okay, well, let's, let's, uh, maybe maybe you have that a little later. Well, yeah, and I wasn't, let's, let's circle around to that. I do want to, I do want to touch on that. The place that we're trying to occupy is the middle ground. We said, There's a road here. There's a ditch on either side of the road. But the middle ground is the gospel. The gospel, which is neither legalism nor lawlessness. It's it's neither works righteousness nor antinomianism. It's neither of those things. It recognizes that every aspect of salvation is a gift of God's grace. There's no part of it that God didn't initiate Mm -hmm. and freely give to Mm -hmm. us without preconditions mm-hmm. on our part it's, and graciously empower and graciously empower that's right even if the, even if you want to call faith a condition you don't get to get away from calling faith a gift that's right god gives it god gives it so christians are not under law that's that's a good new testament term you're not under law which means works cannot improve your standing and the law can't threaten you with condemnation. That's what it means to be under the law. And the reason why works can't improve your standing is because we're justified on the basis of the works of Christ, which can have no improvement. That's they right. Are perfect works, which mean, let's just kind of bask in the gospel for a little bit. Sure. We are just as justified from the moment we believe as we will be for all eternity. That's because right. Because our justification is never us. It's always Christ. The grounds of our justification is always that's Christ. Right. So that's why we can say, as the New Testament does, that we are not under law. Our works are not improved by, uh, or, or rather our standing isn't improved by works because our standing can't be improved because it's on the basis of Christ's works, yeah. which can't be improved upon. Oh, that's right, brother. That's exactly right. So Christians are not under law in that sense, but Christians are are under grace, that's the counterpart. You're not under law, but under grace, the Apostle Paul says. But grace, it turns out, sets us apart for holiness. Grace and holiness are inextricably bound together. God sets us apart for himself. And that setting apart for God is what is expressed in the guidance of God's law. It shows us what that looks like when you're set apart. That Titus chapter 2, if you've got your text there, would you read maybe just verses 11 and 12? Yeah, and it's, it's really helpful to see this relationship between grace and holiness, because this is the sort of middle of the road that we're looking for. We're looking neither to be legalists nor libertines. We're looking neither to be... Uh, antinomian, um, nor 
Pharisees. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Good. Uh, Titus 2.11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Paul says to Titus, that's what the grace of God has done and yes. is doing. God's grace teaches us that and trains us in that. So grace is to the end of our holiness, toward the goal of our holiness. And so in Romans chapter 8, uh, you get you get the the balance right there in Romans 8 chapter chapter 8 verse 4 where we learn that it is God's law that expresses what righteous living looks like and it is God's spirit that transforms us in Christ to be like that but he's transforming us in those law categories read that verse to us and i'm going to back up just a little bit to give us a, a runway to what paul says in in verse 4 verse 3 of romans 8 says for god has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin because of sin he condemned sin in the flesh here's verse 4 in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Yes. So being tr being changed by God's Spirit in Christ means that the righteous requirement of the law is being fulfilled in you. Uh, that's I, it, it couldn't be tighter that the that's what the law's category does for us. It provides that guidance. And, you know, in the history of the church and especially, particularly in the Reformation, there has been controversy and confusion about how we understand God's law. And if we just digress into that a little bit, um, because he's talking about the law. You know, Craig, we're trying to record a podcast here, and you've got your, uh, you've got your ringtone on. Can you pause? Yeah. Hello, it's Craig. That was a rookie mistake i'm sorry where's the make sure this is down all the way <laughs> i'm gonna leave some of that in the podcast by the way oh uh, go for it uh, that's fine with me so well uh, now that your phone call point seven. is over no. uh craig yes where were we uh so we were talking about the fact uh that there's been some confusion and controversy about how to look at the law of god or even what you mean when you say the law of god and it's been it's been articulated this way uh, sometimes it's been said that there are three kinds of laws in the Old Testament. Uh, another way of saying that has been that there have been three different uses of the law. But the, the, the kinds, if you want to call them kinds, are some are ceremonial laws. And, and the use of those, that's the things like washing your hands and as well as killing pigeons and doing a lot of things. Th those, we learn in the New Testament, were given... To have a teaching. The one that came to your mind as an example is killing pigeons. Well, I'm just saying. <laughs> <laughs> Sprinkling blood, that sort of thing. Uh, getting the mold out of your getting, house. Yeah, mold and mildew, that's what came to my mind. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So that has a pedagogical use. It's teaching aspects and categories of salvation. And that's what leads us to Christ. And, and uh, that's the law that we say has passed away. Now, um, to say that there are three kinds of laws is a disputed point. It, it has been argued that they're not really three different kinds, but they overlap. And the people who even hold to this what's called tri tripartite division of the law don't agree on which is which anyway. That's right. That's right. Another way of saying it, the second kind of laws or second use uh, is civil law. That has a, 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 a governing use, a national use. But the New Testament teaches us that its purpose it was given to promote good and deter evil. It's why the government has the sword kind of thing. Uh, in, in the Old Covenant, those laws pertain to national Israel. They were the law of the land. Let me interrupt you one more time to say my, my acknowledging that those who hold to a tripartite view of the law don't agree uh, doesn't mean that I don't hold to a tripartite view of the law or at least 
to see that there are three uses of the law and that that uh, that construction has been helpful to yes. the church. It is a helpful construction, the three uses of the law. And uh, rather than, I'm not willing to affirm that there literally are three kinds of yeah. laws in separate categories, but I think there are three uses. But this second category or second use of the law is also has also ceased in Christ because we don't have a national Israel. The people of God are not a civic nation. Mm-hmm. We're across the world, but we live in various countries, in various cities and towns. And the church is everywhere, but we don't have that kind of nation. It's not a theocracy the way that you might have historically thought of the That's exactly right. Jesus is our king, but we don't have a theocratic, God-ruling nation. We don't yeah. have one of those. But the third category is called the moral law, um, and its, its use is as a guide. It's normative in that it tells you what the norms are, tells you what's good and bad, what's right and wrong. We ordinarily speak of the moral law as being summed up in the Ten Commandments. It, it's not helpful to restrict it tightly to just those verses, however— uh, but those verses are correctly viewed as a summary of God's morality, and and they provide the headings for all the categories of how you might think about what it means to live in a way that's good and not a way that's bad. Um, you know, the Westminster Confession of Faith, those Westminster divines articulated a phrase where they talked about uh, those other laws, those national laws and, and ceremonial laws, they're gone, but the equity of them, the general equity thereof, Westminster divines said, uh, persists because it's, it's reflected in this moral law, which is familiarly to us the Ten Commandments. And so those Ten Commandments can be seen as broad categories which still guide Christians. Yes, because the Ten Commandments, the two tables of the law, can be summarized in love God and love your neighbor, which That's Jesus right. articulated is still binding, there's that word again, That's on the right. Christian. And so the, the critical point there, I'm glad you said that, is it's not the case that now that Jesus has come along, he said you can just love God and love your neighbor and forget about God's law, Love replaces law. No, the, the, the opposite is true. It's law that informs love. Yes. When I, when I hear Jesus tell me to love God and love my neighbor, my next question ought to be, well, how do I go about doing that? And the law tells us. Yeah, don't steal his stuff. Don't take his wife. Do what's good for him. Don't slander his name. Yeah, and, and, and love God <laughs> it means be with his people and have him as first in your life yes. and all these things. Yes. So uh, you mentioned the controversy or, or at least a, a fracture amongst the brethren uh, over how we look at those Ten Commandments. We don't really disagree when you look at them as summed up in the Great Commandment and the Second that's like it. But when it comes to articulating the Ten, some believers have contended that in the New Testament, the Fourth Commandment about remembering the Sabbath day to keep it holy has been fulfilled by Christ in such a way that it's not binding as a category anymore. Every day is a holy day. There is no Christian Sabbath. Whereas other brothers have said, no, the Lord's day that we keep persists as a Christian Sabbath. That's the most generous way I can describe that divide, which is an intramural conversation amongst mm-hmm. true believers yeah. who have faith in Christ. Some are Sabbatarians and others are non-Sabbatarians. And we don't want to digress into that today, but I think all both those parties would agree when the law is summed up as love God and love your neighbor. We're on board uh, with with that as a unifying a unifying summary. For those for whom this discussion is brand new, it might be helpful for you to know that at Christ Memorial Church, I don't know whether every single elder has a position on this issue, but we we practice a non-Sabbatarianism. I mean, we do meet on the Lord's Day, 
But if circumstances required that we meet on some other day of the week, we wouldn't see that yeah. as a failure to keep God's law. That's right. That's right. And there's a, you know, that might be a future podcast. There's a lot of details that go along with how yeah. you reason that and how you get to that place. But <clears throat> what we're talking about is that the law is fulfilled in Christ and it applies to us in Christ as guidance for pursuing the fruit that God wants us to bear. He's showing us what it looks like. So as he changes us and we bear fruit, it looks this way. And that law guides us. Um, you know, I have an analogy and uh, it's probably horrible, but um, I've thought about this a little bit as to how, how I might I might characterize the relationship between the, the Christian and the law on, on a, the analogy is on a, a se separate issue, but a related issue. Uh, I would say the analogy is uh, the relationship between or the antithesis between boundless hedonism on the one hand, hedonism being the pursuit of pleasure and a denial of pleasure on the other hand. If I we think, want to give that a label, asceticism. Yes. If hedonism we want to give, versus asceticism. Yes, hedonism versus asceticism. And so, you know, hedonism is analogous to the antinomianism, and asceticism is analogous to the legalism that we're talking about. And and so here's the here's the issue as you try to flesh that analogy out. God clearly created man with a capacity for pleasure and delight. That's who and what we are, and it's a way that we're like God because God has a capacity for pleasure and delight. He tells us a lot about that in his word. But for us, an unrestrained pursuit of pleasure that's not informed about what's, what's the proper object of pleasure, that's not godliness. That's not godliness. Just pursuit, making pleasure itself the highest good without any boundaries to that. On the other hand... Or, or without acknowledging uh, God as the giver of those things, eating a delicious meal to the glory of God yes. and with thanksgiving to God. Yeah, without recognizing that there could be true pleasures and false pleasures. Yes. Um, so just pursuing pleasure isn't godliness. That's right. Um, but on the other hand, a flat, no affect denial of pleasure, a severity and sternness of life, that's not godliness either. Right, as an end to itself. As an end to itself. Mm -hmm. That is not godliness. You know, godliness is, I think, evidenced, uh, one of my favorite passages, if you got your text there, Mitch, is 1 Timothy 4, 4 and 5. Just read that for us. The Bible says, for everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God in prayer. Yeah, so godliness can be seen in that verse and in the Bible as the grateful enjoyment of all of God's good gifts as they are sanctified by the word, which means as their use is guided by the word of God and by prayer. So their, their use is informed by the law of God, which says what God is like and what God calls good and what call, God calls bad. And the, the law of God in that context remains, as Paul says it is, holy and righteous and good. And it's telling me how to enjoy how to have pleasures forever it's telling me how to enjoy god it's giving me guidance and so uh, just as just as pleasurelessness and unbridled pleasure are two extremes between uh, on either side of the middle of the road where enjoying god's good gifts according to god's guidance lies Similarly, the, 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 the whole practice of God's law is, is in the middle, in the gospel, in Christ, between the extremes of being bound up under rules, regulations, and trying to make God happy, and being off living by no guidance at all and doing whatever I please on my own whims. 
We want to be on that gospel road that's, that's in the middle between those two extremes. So maybe we don't need examples of where legalism and lawlessness might show their heads in churches today. But there are some that are common. Certainly one uh, would be a Christian's relationship to various substances like alcohol. Uh, you know, we're into this sort of weaker brother territory, but uh, there are those whose response to what do you do about alcohol? And the answer is you don't use it and you condemn everybody who does use it. And on the other, the other ditch on the other side or, of the or if, if you don't quite condemn them, and we're getting back to what we've said earlier, you don't quite condemn them, but a good Christian, yeah. a, a wise Christian, a, a thoughtful Christian, a better Christian, a better Christian, yeah, wouldn't uh, really do that. It's not sin. Yeah, that's exactly right. <laughs> the longer, the higher pitched yeah, the voice, right. and the that's longer right. the words held out. Uh, uh, it's not a sin, sin, but it's a sin. Yeah, yeah, yes, yeah. yes, I, I'm with you. I'm with you. The other, the, the ditch on the other side of the road is, hey, I can drink however much I want. I can. It makes me feel good, and me feeling good is a fine goal. God's got no trouble with it. And, and of course, obviously, the gospel is in the middle, and God's word guides us on this point because God condemns drunkenness. That still leaves you to decide what drunkenness is exactly like. But you, you have a path in the middle. Nothing created by God is bad. It's all good, but its use has to be guided by the Word of God. And, you know, the same would be true in the, under the broad umbrella of uh, what I might today just call media. We're talking about uh, images. Uh, you know, we used to just say TV and movies, but now it's everything on the Internet, everything on social media, everything, all kinds of, of viewing. There are those on the in the ditch on the one side of the road uh, that, that just say, uh, you know, you, you, can't, you can't do those things. Good Christians don't go on the Internet. Good Christians don't. They're not on TikTok. They're not on YouTube. They're not on Instagram. They're not on Snapchat. They just don't do it. It's stay away from it. And then you got people on the other side of the, who are saying, oh, no, I can do whatever I want on here. It doesn't matter. God doesn't say it doesn't have anything to say about what I'm looking at, what, what I'm imbibing, what I'm drinking. And obviously, God's Word is guiding us in the middle, in the gospel, that we have a call to purity. We have a command for, for uh, being like Christ. So we have to use discernment and let God's law guide us into what's good and what's bad. Yeah, and I think First Timothy chapter 4, verses 4 and 5 is a helpful uh, a helpful rubric. I read those verses earlier, but committing those to memory and thinking, uh, using them as a guide for, for how you think through some of the questions that we're talking about is helpful. And, and with Romans 14 in mind, whatever is done outside of faith is sin. So, um, so uh, we can take advice from Jiminy Cricket in this area. And always <laughs> let your it. conscience be your guide. Yes, w- yes. Which is to say, if, if for you to consume alcohol if you don't have the freedom in your conscience to do it, then you must abstain. For you to do it is to sin. Um, but, of course, we're talking about the things that your conscience permits you to do. That's right. That's right. So, you know, another way of saying what you just said without bringing Jiminy Cricket into it, <laughs> somebody somewhere once said uh, Christians, holy living for Christians is to love God and do whatever you want. And I want to tweak that a little bit because that could certainly be abused but i think the rubric in its essence is true with this proviso i think we say we love god and we let god alone tell us what loving him looks like and and we trust god alone to transform our hearts so that we do love him and then we do whatever we want yeah because it's informed by a new heart with new desires new new effects well, there's an episode of From Dan to Beersheba on legalism and lawlessness, legalism and antinomianism, legalism, Phariseeism versus libertinism. And we like to uh, point you toward good resources if you want to read more and think more about that. One of the ones that I know would be very helpful um, is written by our dear brother, 
you know him, I don't know him, or he doesn't know me, rather, Sinclair <laughs> Ferguson, uh, the great Scotsman theologian who wrote a book called The Whole Christ. Now, the book is available from Crossway. You can also go to Ligonier Ministries and watch. It may be free or it may be available for a nominal fee. You can watch uh, our brother Sinclair lecture through the whole Christ, but that book pivots off of another book. Yes, that book includes the historical controversy that came up uh, during the um, Sc- the Reformation in Scotland, um, the second generation. Called the the book called the Marrow of Modern Divinity is written by E. M. Fisher, and uh, there's a whole a whole history to this book. This would be a little harder read, although. Actually, a compelling read because of the way it's written in a, sort of a dialogical form, like it was a play. There are these characters, and they're interacting, and they're all stereotyped characters. Their names tell you who they are. And I might add, if you read The Marrow of Modern Divinity, the, the version with Thomas Boston's footnotes, the footnotes alone are worth the uh, price of the book. But if you read The Whole Christ as a good introduction to this conversation, about how to uh, chart a middle way between legalism and libertinism uh, by Ferguson, the whole Christ. You're going to see him mention the Octor Arter Creed and the Marrow of Modern Divinity, That's right. which informed discussion. So you can head to read Fisher in Boston after you've uh, read Ferguson. Well, this has been yet another episode of From Dan to Beersheba. Our thanks to our producer and editor, John Pastor. We're now on Spotify and Apple Podcasts, so you can subscribe to this podcast by searching CMC From Dan to Beersheba. So let me encourage you to do that, to subscribe. And if you like the podcast, leave a review. Until next time, for Craig, I'm Mitch. Grace and peace to you.